the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show on social media. Uh, Joe Biden giving a bit of a tutorial, which is helpful on the language, so that we understand um, what unity means in this brave new world. Uh, Joe Biden at uh, his press avail yesterday. One is unity requires you to take away, eliminate the vitriol. Make anything that you disagree with about the other person's personality or their lack of integrity or they're not decent legislators and the like. Mm-hmm. So we have to get rid of that. And I think that's already beginning to change, but God knows where things go, number one. Unity also is trying to reflect what the majority of the American people, Democrat, Republican, Independent, think is within the fulcrum of what needs to be done to make their lives and the lives of Americans better. The fulcrum? Now can you define fulcrum? Because I don't think that word means what you think it means, number one. Number two, um, unity. Uh, unity is patient. Unity is kind. Um, unity is eliminating the vitriol. That's what unity is. Uh, sure. Um, unity is also value neutral. I-, I thought we had this conversation during the Obama years, like hope. Uh, or actually, like change is value neutral, it can be changed for the bad. It can be changed for the good. Uh, unity can be people getting together to clean up a neighborhood or it can be people getting together to rob a bank. Right. <laughs> so uh, but it's also one thing. Unity is not necessarily. So what it is and what it is not necessarily is bipartisan. Unity also is trying to get at at a minimum, if, if you pass a piece of legislation that breaks down on party lines, but it gets passed, it doesn't mean there wasn't unity. It just means it wasn't bipartisan. I prefer these things to be bipartisan because I'm trying to generate some consensus and take sort of the, uh, how can I say it, the vitriol out of all of this. Right. Unity is agreeing with me. And uh, that's what... Uh President uh, Biden had to say uh, that uh, it needs to go forward. He wasn't uh, overly sanguine about the prospects of conviction, but he believes it needs to go forward because that's what he was told by uh, his minders in the two caucuses. And and uh, of course, you have um, these House managers making the rounds on CNN and MSNBC to give us compelling arguments for impeachment 2.0, like Diana DeGette. A Democrat from Colorado who's one of the House impeachment managers. Listen to this uh, intellectual tour de force. Well, the the president says you can try somebody who has left office. The president is clear. But also, the the reason is, you can't just say, okay, if you're president, you can 
you can just do anything you want the last few weeks of your presidency with no consequence because uh, because then then you couldn't be tried. The um, um, precedent. I think I'm going to need her to define what she means by precedent the same way I need Joe Biden to define fulcrum because I don't think she knows either what the precedent is that she's referencing or what precedent means. I love the argument. The precedent is the precedent. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Scott McKay, publisher at The Hayride and contributor to American Spectator. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Boy, that's a hell of a word salad you got Biden and get putting out there yesterday. Huh? Well, yeah, it's a lot to keep track of. You know, I'm just trying to keep up with the glossary of terms, and it's not easy, as you know. Um, but um, it's going to go forward. Uh, we're going to have a trial on February 8th. And it, it looks uh, with each passing day like uh, Biden and Democrats and Mitt Romney get further and further away from conviction. Well, I, I, I mean, it's it, this is how they want to start off uh, having the White House and both houses of Congress under their control. They're going to impeach a guy who's no longer in office. Which is has that ever even been done before? Well, not to not to in a uh, not to a president of the United States. Only you know the precedent that they keep referring to is Ulysses S. Grant, Secretary of War. So he's a cabinet member and appointee who was uh, Im- impeached, but then acquitted six months after he resigned his post uh, and after the Grant administration. So that's what they're banking on. And of course, this is very much a debate among legal scholars from. Alan Dershowitz and uh, former Judge Michael Luddig to Andy McCarthy. So people are all over the the board on it. But, I mean, it it seems to me that the underlying article that was so somberly marched across yesterday again uh, is uh, is really the problem with their case. Well, I, I mean, there's there's no factual case for the for the contention that Trump uh, incited an insurrection. I mean, that's that's an unfactual argument to make. Um, it, it, the other piece to this is it's completely and totally pointless. I mean, if what they're afraid of is that a 78-year-old Donald Trump is going to run for president in 2024, uh, I mean, I, you know, you have bigger problems than that right now. I mean, this is the kind of pointless stupid Washington, D.C. stuff that gets you turned out of your majorities in both houses in 2022 really, really quickly. Um, You know, they've already got a major problem coming with redistricting in that red states are going to pick up congressional seats that right now the the Democrats can't afford to lose. Um, And I'm pretty sure that Republican-dominated legislatures in those red states are going to apportion those seats in red, you know, into red districts. Um, That's a good you know, point. And how many they do, I don't know. But I mean, you know, you put what is it, ten seats or something, uh, and and Nancy Pelosi is a, minor, a minority leader in the House. So, you know, you've already got a problem in that you're going to have to essentially gain seats to to keep seats or you know keep what you have. And now you're, I mean, this is 2010 all over again coming in that. You know, you're going to overreach and you're going to give the GOP an opportunity to blow you out in the first midterm. Um, but, but how, and, how, and it'll be justified because you took that power and you completely misused it. I mean, 
you know, we can talk about Biden's executive orders, which is a, a parade of horribles. And then, you you know, you're impeaching an ex-president. I mean, well, you know, what people are going to think is you're a deeply unserious group of people. And they're going to think that for, you know, for very good reason. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I think that's I think that's one uh, possible outcome. But then there is the complication of Republicans running interference into into that outcome. And, I, and by that, I mean. Uh, the 10 Republicans who voted for impeachment in the House and the fight over whether or not to remove Liz Cheney from leadership in the House, uh, what Mitch McConnell may or may not do with respect to this impeachment. But uh, some of the comments he has made uh, seem to indicate you know, general support for conviction. We'll see. Uh, so it seems to me that um, the, the, the Democrats are maybe uh, banking on uh, serving their base and hoping to get a house divided, as it were, within the Republican Party to skate through this, even if they can't get a conviction. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, Liz Cheney is going to pay a very serious price for what she did. I mean, I, you know, the, back home in Wyoming, she's got colossal problems, meaning she's going to lose a primary election. Uh, I'd be really surprised if she holds on to her spot, uh, you know, as the chair of the House conference. Um, I mean, you've got more than half of the caucus has signed a petition to get rid of her. So I, I, my guess is, is, you know, by this time in 2023, Liz Cheney will be, you know, a pet conservative analyst on C, CNN or, you know, MSNBC or something, um, because she's going to get turned out of politics. Uh, and, and I think that goes for a lot of these other, you know, these other nine uh, House members. And, you know, what you notice is the the ones in the Senate that are talking about it are generally speaking people that, uh, you know, are not going to either they're not up in 2022 or they're not running in 2022. Um, and they know that they're going to get blown out in the primary. I mean, remember, I, this is not just about Trump. This is about 90 percent of Republican voters who are still loyal to Trump. Um, and, you know, and the reason Trump came around was dissatisfaction with GOP Washington establishment folks who think they're going to take the party back and are sorely, sorely mistaken. I think what's going to happen to Liz Cheney will uh, signal that. And, and a lot of this gets tamped down really quickly. When we come back with the Hayride, Scott McKay is President Trump's uh, third party Patriot Party play a real threat or just a negotiation tactic. We'll uh, take up that right after this. She said, don't give me no lines and keep your hands to yourself. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we're speaking with the hayride scott mckay about uh, impeachment 2.0 and uh, Scott, uh, address the irony and uh, the disingenuousness of 
Democrats uh, wanting to uh, convict for the purposes of barring from ever running for office again, when in point of fact, they would love President Trump to stick around and run again in 2024, wouldn't they really? Because he is a, a whipping boy that provides uh, utility to them in a way that you know other Republicans that don't have that profile uh, uh, don't. Uh, well, there's no. I mean, we have a yeah a precedent here, which is uh, the way that Obama spent his entire first year in office bashing George W. Bush, right? Like, I mean, you know, Bush was responsible for all of the bad things in the world. And, you know, and, and so everything that Obama had to do was, well, we got to fix, you know, Bush drove it into a ditch. They're going to be doing that with Trump. The problem is Trump was a reasonably successful president and people are going to recognize that Joe Biden is not. So, you know, the more you talk about Trump, the more people are like, this guy was actually a lot better than you. Um, you know, and when you suffer under that comparison, um, you know, it's, I, it's just not good politics. You know, do, do I mean, you, I, what, what, what about, uh, by the way, you know, Trump uh, putting out a, uh, a, a missive yesterday, opening the formally opening the office of the former president. That was interesting. But but what, what do you think about sort of the uh, uh, public ruminations about a patriot party, a third party, which is is that a good way for Trump to uh, try to uh, bring McCarthy, well, really bring McConnell into the fold, keep keep, uh, some discipline here with respect to the impeachment trial? Or should he be uh, making overtures to an really an ally like McCarthy as opposed to McConnell and saying, you know, let's get about the business of uh, finding places where you think I can be helpful in House races to take back the House in 2022. And if McConnell wants to continue to make it personal between me and him, then, uh, you know, that's the job of the Senate Republican caucus to figure that out. Well, I, I, I mean, I think this Patriot Party thing is uh, I think it's a negotiation ploy yeah. because it makes sense as a negotiation ploy. It doesn't make sense as a as a, you know, as a policy. Right. I mean, your people control 90 percent of the party itself. That's going to manifest itself in local and state GOP uh, organizations. To, to go and pull yourself out of all of that uh, just because you've got, you know, the, the skim off the top in Washington, uh, you know, the, the Mitt Romney's and the McConnell's and the Lisa Murkowski's and so forth who don't represent the party's voters. I mean, I, you know, all you really got to do is lean on those people and you can replace them. I mean, you know, Rob Portman's not going to run for reelection. Right. Uh, and, and whoever replaces Rob Portman, the way Ohio is gone, uh, is pretty likely going to be, I, I'm not saying it's going to be Jim Jordan, but it's going to be somebody that is much more reminiscent of, you know, Jim Jordan than Rob Portman. So, um, so, so what, what's your interpretation then of what McConnell is doing? Cause it seems to be, uh, it's, it's, it's confusing. Is he, is he trying to make a clean break to set up John Thune to replace him, to try to sort of, uh, expel, uh, at least uh, Trump leaning conservatives is it, uh, I mean, I don't buy this, you know, institutionalist and he's just protecting the institution. He's, you know, another he- political hero. Uh, it, it, there, there's, a, there's a Machiavellian play here, and I'm just not sure I'm seeing how what he said so far is a way to position himself to regain the majority as opposed to position himself to create a, a real factionalization within his caucus. 
well, I, I mean, I, I, Mitch McConnell is a very sneaky dude. Um, and I, my thought had, from the get-go has been that he's trying to bait the Democrats into pushing this impeachment as far as they can. And then, you know, kind of do Lucy with the football with them. And, and then all of a sudden the Republicans aren't going to vote for it. And it'll be, well, you know, we looked at all the evidence and the fact of the matter is, is Trump's not guilty of this. Um, you know, which will, I mean, if I'm Mitch McConnell, I want the Senate to get tied up doing this impeachment for as long as possible, because when they're doing that, they're not doing all of these other horrendous things that they could be doing with, you know, majorities in both the House and the Senate and, and a president who'll sign the bill. So I, I think mm. he's doing that. And then at the end of the day, when it collapses and it's a failure, um, you know, it, it puts him in a position to, to retake the majority. I, I think that's what he's doing, um, you know, but if he can you know, twist the knife in Trump a little bit, it doesn't bother him um, because, you know, he and Trump have never been particularly you know, fans of each other. So, uh, you know, to me, I, I think, that, you know, McConnell wins every way around, except that he runs a very serious risk of, you know, the Republican base demanding somebody else be the, uh, Absolutely. the Republican leader in the Senate. Absolutely, because um, the headline will be bipartisan, uh, you know, vote falls short with Ben Sass, Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, for example, voting to convict. And uh, they'll have the, the handful they need in the Senate, just like they had a handful in the House to say a bipartisan effort. But, you know, it was the, the Trumpians that uh, prevented uh, justice and so on and so forth. And and I don't know that that really redounds to the benefit of, of, of McConnell or the Republican Party in terms of market positioning for 22. No, it doesn't. But, you know, I, I'm not 100 percent sure that all of that happens. This, this might be one of these deals where you get people who say, look, I don't like Trump. I never did like Trump, blah, 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 blah. But he's not guilty of this. And so I'm not voting for the impeachment. And then you, only, you have 54 and 50 against. And it's completely cut along party lines. Um, and then maybe, you know, one of these guys comes up with a resolution to censure Trump. Uh, and then, you know, everybody gets on board with that. But who cares? Right. I, I, to right. me, I think that's the way this thing ultimately is going to go, um, you know, which doesn't really help to galvanize the Republicans. But it also wastes a whole lot of time. Uh, within the Senate that, you know, could be used doing things like, you know, uh, yeah. passing a $15 minimum wage or, you know, whatever things that that the economy can't withstand. Right. Uh, using the Dean Smith I, four you know, corners. Yeah. Right. To, to run out. As yeah, much I, I mean, as you I can. think that you're you're giving Mitch McConnell, who is very good at these things, an opportunity to, you know, just eat up as much time in this Congress as possible on an impeachment. Um, and, and, you know, wh whether they convict Trump or not, if they spend three or four months on this and don't actually pass anything, um, <laughs> that's a, you know, I mean, that's great from, from the standpoint of, you know, the American people and damage not being done. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not terrible. Um, you know, and now the people that, that do vote for this impeachment, I, you know, I, God help them if they come up in 2022, because they're going to get primaried and they're going to lose. He is Scott McKay, publisher at thehayride.com and contributor to the American Spectator as well. Scott, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Take care.
political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. This is The Dan Proft Show. I'm reliable, I'm a very good listener, and I'm extremely funny. On the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. In 1981 in Chicago, then-Mayor Jane Byrne made national news by moving into a housing project called Cabrini Green that was riddled with violence. And uh, she stayed there about three weeks. Uh, ultimately, it was viewed as you know, sort of a publicity stunt. Uh, yeah, she drew attention, I guess, outside of Chicago to the violence that was occurring in in and around that housing project. But, of course, Chicago residents are very familiar with that violence then now. And, unfortunately, we've gotten quite accustomed to street violence. And the politicians, whether pulling stunts like Byrne did or just advancing the same policy she did, haven't done much to quell Chicago's reputation as one of the most violent cities in America some 40 years later. I'm sad to say, of course, as a Chicago resident. And so I, I thought about that immediately when I heard about this story about the mayor of Aurora, Colorado. Although um, the outcome of this, according to the reporting on this, is a bit different than happened with Mayor Byrne. She didn't really change anything that was happening on the city in terms of policy. Whereas the mayor of Aurora, Colorado, after posing as a homeless veteran and uh, being homeless, staying out in the streets of Aurora, Colorado for a week, he did change uh, his understanding of the homelessness problem in his community and uh, urged some different uh, different approaches to policies with respect to the homeless. And so I thought, well, this is an interesting story. So let's get the mayor to talk about it. And thankfully, we have him. Mayor Mike Kaufman, the mayor of Aurora, Colorado. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, uh, start with uh, what precipitated uh, this, uh, you know, undercover operation, as it were. You know, I really didn't uh, feel that I understood um, the issue. Uh, the, the mayor of Denver, so you know, we're in a, a Denver metropolitan region. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aurora uh, is the 54th largest city in America by population, and uh, Denver's probably Denver's probably twice as large as the city of Aurora. And so, the mayor of Denver had reached out to me and said, "Hey, let's work together on some regional solutions in homelessness." And uh, his it, it problem is much larger than than what we have in the city of Aurora. And so, uh, uh, and so it was that was in December and. It was approaching the Christmas holidays, and so I said, you know, people normally take vacations uh, around Christmas, and so you know what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm just going to, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm single. I don't have any children. Uh, have uh, relatives in in town. Uh, stay with them on Christmas, and then uh, on the following day, on the 26th, uh, without telling anybody except for one reporter from uh, CBS. A four an affiliate affiliate of um, a local affiliate of CBS uh, TV news uh, told that one person that and that was all I told and and went out uh, with no money uh, no food with me backpack sleeping bag on um, tarp a uh, couple bottles of water uh, you know <laughs> toothpaste toothpaste uh, extra socks and <laughs> one set of clothes that was it and so uh, it was such an eye-opening experience. Uh, uh, probably not in a positive way, but I think in a positive way in terms of being able to understand the issue better, 
but but I think the fact is that um, there are people that that we need to help that the, the mentally ill, the um, those that, that have lost their job uh, from economic reasons and are, but but want to go to work and get back on their feet, and, and certainly those who have drug and alcohol issues but but want to change. But the problem is that's not the majority of the homeless, and so. The, the unfortunate reality is, is what I observed, at least in the Denver metro area, Denver and Aurora, was that the majority of the homeless were people that were um, that had fallen into a very destructive lifestyle uh, that was being enabled uh, by well-meaning people. Mm. Uh, and of course, the, the the first question before we even get to that is, uh, you know, why don't you just wait till the spring when it's a little bit warmer? But um, uh, you know, <laughs> I it was the cold was the hardest part of it. I should. I'm, I'm, I have no it doubt. Been a lot easier. Uh, oh my gosh. When we come back with uh, the mayor, I, I want to uh, get a little bit more uh, uh, about you know what you thought going in versus what you thought coming out, and your the change in attitude and and policy prescriptions, and then how that was received by certain stakeholders in the community, because, of course, uh, you're getting some pushback on what you did and what you're suggesting the new approach should be to uh, the homeless situation in Aurora and the Denver area. More with Aurora, Colorado Mayor Mike Kaufman right after this. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Aurora, Colorado Mayor Mike Kaufman about his uh, undercover operation. He uh, was homeless in his community of Aurora for a week, uh, purposely uh, uh, posing as a homeless veteran to get a better understanding of the homeless situation there and uh, the composition of homeless, the homeless population, and then, you know, what's the best approach to deal with different people who have uh, different issues. Uh, and one of the things, uh, Mayor, you say coming out of this, number one is uh, you change your opinion on banning homeless encampments. Denver has a ban. Uh, you change your position. Uh, and, and you were just speaking before the break about uh, uh, the majority of homeless uh, are engaged in a destructive lifestyle. And, and so, you, you know, so there's some personal responsibility that needs to be accounted for there. Um, but you uh, change your position on the homeless encampments. What, why was what was the basis for that? So I, I, I had a proposal written before I went and was figured I'd introduce it when I got back. Um, <clears throat> but Aurora, uh, the city of Aurora, um, had what we call, uh, prior to the pandemic, had a, what we call a day resource center where people can go in the day and get services, homeless people in the area. And then during inclement weather, uh, on those specific days, uh, when when the temperature below, drop, uh, let's say uh, below freezing, uh, or there was significant rain, uh, depending on the time of year, <clears throat> we would then allow them to stay overnight in that facility. But it wasn't available every night, and so uh, because of the pandemic, we in social distancing, 
we created a shelter that started on December 1st and goes through uh, April 30th. Uh, now, if the city council, so right now it's, it's scheduled to terminate on April 30th. If, in fact, the city council makes it permanent, then I'll, then I'll go forward with the camping ban. The, the, the challenge with the camping ban is to, to survive, uh, you know, legal uh, um, challenges, let's say. Then you have to maintain a permanent year-round shelter and, and other services as well. And so, um, so I'm, I'm concerned. Uh, about that and we would prefer to go back to the system that we had before the pandemic on, on that we will have again after april 30th but in fact if if uh, the city council uh, reverses themselves and makes that shelter permanent then you bet i'll go forward with a, a camping ban but so and you write in the denver post uh, uh, that uh, the the homeless encampments outside versus those that uh, the, the individuals who access the shelter there are two really distinct groups, and um, and that was also an insight you gathered from from uh, your from being in, outside there with uh, homeless individuals. So, what are the two groups, and and how do you explain the disparate groups? Yeah, I was really surprised um, that uh, I just assumed uh, home, homeless people were fairly homogenous, and you know that they gravitated between shelters and these these uh, larger encampments. And what I found was very different that the um, that there were services provided uh, in the the um, in the shelters uh, that you know certainly homeless people could access. Uh, when I always went through the intake process uh, of going into a shelter, um, they would always ask me, "Okay, um, what services do you need? Uh, you know, what issues do you have? Do you want? Uh, do you need substance abuse? You know, therapy or whatever? Do you need?" Um, uh, job training, job placement, uh, uh, longer-term program uh, that, that they that they offered. Uh, so there were lots of things, services provided. But the interesting thing is, what I found is, the people in the shelters never camped, never went to the encampments, and the people in the encampments never went to the shelters. Uh, what I found in the um, quickly in the, in the in the shelters, there were sort of three different categories. One, the, the mentally ill that we really need to help. Uh, uh, the larger largest group were people with substance abuse problems that, that had no desire to change and, and, um, and utilize the shelters for for food and a place to sleep at night. And then the third is people that were down, the, you know, due to say COVID restrictions were uh, were were forced out of work and that uh, really wanted to get back on their feet. We're doing day labor, we're looking for jobs, uh, we're using the shelters as a way to save enough money to, for, to, get, a, to get another apartment. The, the um, encampments, however, particularly the larger ones, they, those um, were much younger people, uh, usually in their 20s, uh, early 20s. They, um, there, there kind of was a, a communal spirit uh, in them, uh, with a social structure that had its own leadership, um, the, the the common denominator was was hard drug use, uh, usually methamphetamine, crystal methamphetamine. Uh, they'd inject it they, in in their arms and smoke it, and so um, uh, so very two and and they never accessed the shelters because uh, they didn't like the rules of the shelters and one rule in particular particular was you can't have drugs inside the shelters, nor can you use drugs at will uh, inside the shelters.
Well, and, and so uh, one of the takeaways uh, it was reported uh, is that uh, you wanted to see a public education campaign that urges people not to bring food and other necessities to those experience homelessness. And this has, I guess, unsurprisingly drawn uh, a rebuke from some homeless advocates in the community. Sure. I was really shocked that I ate better in the encampments than I did uh, in the shelters with people bringing food. Uh, to the encampment. I remember Friday night, uh, my last night there on January 1st, the evening of January 1st, car pulls up. Uh, anybody hungry? I've got some homemade chicken noodle soup. I mean, it was, and so was that sure. It was incredible with uh, banana and nut bread for dessert. And then 30 minutes later, another car pulls up. Anybody hungry? Uh, a big Tupperware container uh, that they gave me of uh, the greatest homemade beef stew with a, with a roll, uh, with cupcakes for dessert and a bottle of water and asked if I needed a blanket. So, there's there's there, there's a lot of sympathy uh, out in the community for people like this. The problem is, is when you have people that don't want to change, that that you know don't want uh, to change their lifestyle, that, that want to stay in the encampments, that that don't want to go to work, uh, that that want to continue using drugs, um, you are enabling that yeah. destructive behavior. By helping them, and again, the, the people we need to help are, are the people. Certainly, you know, those people unemployed that, that want to get back to work. Uh, you know, the mentally ill, uh, the people that that have drug and alcohol issues, but that want to change. Um, those, that's where our resources are. He is mm-hmm. uh, Mike Kaufman, the mayor of Aurora, Colorado. Mayor Kaufman, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Take care. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I have to make a remark or two about uh, ongoings at the World Economic Forum in Davos, particularly with uh, Chinese Communist President Xi addressing the august body yesterday, you know, wowing them, as the Wall Street Journal reported, with his sort of refrigerator magnet bromides that uh, belie a uh, nefarious agenda, as we well know. But before you even get to what President Xi had to say, Klaus Schwab, who is the founder of the World Economic Forum, we've spoken about him before uh, with Conrad Black on this program. Conrad Black, who knows him, we used to attend the World Economic Forum and, you know, is impressed with what he's been able to pull together, but not impressed with his intellect, much less his agenda. And this is all about the Great Reset, which you'll hear Klaus Schwab mention in passing in his uh, effusive introduction of President Xi, the Great Reset, just uh, a quick handle on it. The idea of rebuilding a global economy that focuses on improving capitalism by making investments more geared towards mutual progress as the status define it, focusing on things like environmental initiatives, which, of course, is a punchline when you're talking about Chinese Communist Party that is standing up as many coal-fired energy plants as they're standing up. But nonetheless, listen to Klaus Schwab's introduction. I could mention many initiatives that China has undertaken in the spirit of creating a world where all actors assume a responsible and responsive role. Mr. President, I believe this is the best time to reset our policies and to work jointly 
for a peaceful and prosperous world. We all welcome now His Excellency Xi Jinping, President of the People's Republic of China. Yeah, His Excellency, there's nothing uh, more inclusive than uh, relegating a million or so religious minorities to concentration camps, is there, Klaus? But uh, all the buzzwords were there in what President Xi had to say. History is moving forward and the world will not go back to the way it was, he said. Uh, and this guy, the stones on this guy. Guided by science, reason, and humanitarian spirit, the world has achieved initial progress in fighting COVID-19, says um, President Xi of China, where, of course, the virus originated. That said, the pandemic is far from over. Winter cannot stop the arrival of spring and darkness can never shroud the light of dawn. He's positively poetic. And, of course, this belies the uh, weekend uh, military flyovers over Taiwan, menacing, as was their intention. And we'll see how the Biden administration stands up to President Xi if it continues the aggressive posture, which was really a break from 30 years of U.S. diplomacy that was initiated by the Trump administration with the president as well as Secretary of State Pompeo, most notably. It is really remarkable, and this is something that needs to be watched. And as the Wall Street Journal noted, the problem with it is even if you have that aggressive posture from the Biden administration, you still have so many in the administration that are true believers in the Glossian type of global governance, particularly focused on what they describe as the apocalyptic threat that's posed by climate change. And oh, by the way, will you be doing the bidding of President Xi and uh, the expansionist aims of China in the process, no matter how tough is the rhetoric in a bilateral sense? Because there's no question where the President Xi regime wants to go during the Biden administration, just as there was no question where they wanted to go subsequent to it. And President Trump picked up on it. We'll see if the Biden administration does. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show, a uh, fascinating piece in The New Yorker. I want to meet my teacher. A protest is described in the small suburb of Maplewood, New Jersey, about 25,000 people. One of the organizers is a woman named Julie Fry, uh, and she announces the crowd as described in this piece. We have extra masks and hand sanitizer and so on and so forth. A woman next to her is uh, wearing a L.L. Bean windbreaker and a mask that read WWRBGD, like what would Ruth Bader Ginsburg do? Julie Fry, the organizer of this protest against school closure, public defender, Describes her political views as left radical. She was involved in the Occupy Wall Street movement back when she lived in Brooklyn before she followed the migratory pattern that has brought so many other progressive young parents to Maplewood, New Jersey, a town that prides itself on its racial diversity and spirit of social activism. But uh, she came to a position that put her at odds with uh, many of her neighbors, particularly those that were part of the school system. She wanted her first grader to go to school. At a December protest, children stood next to their parents, held signs that read, I want to meet my teacher and don't mute me. A little girl gripped a pendant on a stick, uh, observed the author. I want real school. One masked mom after another came forward citing studies that suggest children are relatively less vulnerable to the virus and the recommendations of public health experts who say reopening schools should be an overarching priority. Hmm. Uh, who says there can't be unity across ideological uh, spectrum? It uh, has less to do with ideology and I guess more to do perhaps with who you're beholden to, as we're seeing from President Biden. If you're beholden to the teachers unions that don't want to go back to school, don't want to go back to teaching, then um, you're on one side of the 
Maginot line. And if you're somebody who's following the research, considering what is in the best interest of the children, then you're on the other side of that line. And it's very interesting as parents are being pitted against their kids, teachers and school administrators, how this may reshape the way we do K through 12 education in America. Maybe it at least generates a conversation for some considerations. For more on this discussion, we're pleased to be joined by Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice. Jason, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so it's uh, fascinating, you know, the the uh, teachers unions and, and the politicians that uh, march to the beat of their drum. They always want to make uh, things like a competition in K-12 through education an ideological thing or a partisan thing. And as we're seeing, perhaps most uh, in the most pronounced fashion we've seen in the last 30 years, when it comes to kids' education, you can get some very strange political bedfellows. This is about how we do education, not about who you voted for as President of the United States, per se. And uh, Boy, this little uh, story that was told in The New Yorker, a left-wing outlet, about a left-wing community in New Jersey really drives that point home to me. Yeah, I mean, I think this whole uh, thing with COVID and the school shutdowns really just illustrates how important it is that families have multiple options. Some families are uh, very nervous about COVID and their kids getting it or their kids bringing it home and possibly infecting somebody in the home. Uh, And so they want virtual education or they want to be in small clusters of children like uh, these uh, so-called pandemic pods. Others want their kids back in full-time instruction in person uh, with their classmates uh, to the extent possible. But not everybody is going to have their wishes met in uh, a top-down system where you are assigned to a school based on the location of your home. We would be doing much better in this pandemic if the money were to follow the child into the learning environment that the parents believe best meet their individual needs and also meet their needs in this time of crisis. And it's been interesting to see the reaction from the institutional interests that want a status quo and then and the status quo in terms of the power relationship, who's really in control of the K through 12 schools, the government school systems. The NEA in a recent uh, policy paper essentially uses language like radicals and unqualified to talk about parents who develop these sort of pods like you're, you mentioned uh, putting together families and maybe somebody, different parents with uh, expertise taking different subjects or bringing in a teacher to teach the their little pod. They, they're really uh, attempting to vilify parents who take their kids out of the public school system, a public school system that, that they want to remain closed in spite of the evidence worldwide, trying to uh, treat them like they treat politicians who disagree with them. So you're suggesting they're promoting separate but equal, they're creating racial divisions, they're leaving uh, students of color behind, and uh, also they're radicals and they're unqualified to teach even their own children. I mean, really, if there's any system that has done more to leave students of color behind than the public school system that we have today, I can't think of one. Over and over, uh, research on school choice programs like vouchers, tax credit scholarships, and education savings accounts finds not only that the students who are participating in the programs have statistically significant learning gains, but that the greatest learning gains are among those who are mo- the most disadvantaged, uh, including students of color. It's the families uh, that are the most choice deprived that have the most to gain from expansion of educational choice. Uh, we do a monthly uh, tracker of uh, public opinion at EdChoice. Uh, our most recent data show that 76% of parents of school-aged children say that they would be in favor of an education savings account that they could use for things like private school tuition, tutoring, and and more, uh, and and would allow any money that they saved to roll over into the next year 
uh, for future expenses. And and we've seen the data, too. I mean, just in terms of the percentage of private schools versus public schools that have had some in-person learning. I mean, it's a very small percentage initially of, of public schools, something like 5 percent versus 60 percent of private schools. And that disparity just in terms of it just speaks to the, the, the difference in the approach to education and, and where the focus is. Uh, it seems school systems that are dominated by teachers unions are adult focused and school systems that um, – are not teachers union dominated, are more child focused, uh, family focused for the the families that send their kids to that school. And and I thought that was sort of the point. It it just seems to me an untenable position for the teachers unions to continue to suggest that uh, people who are poorer can't afford the same options as people who have a little bit more money shouldn't have the same choices. I mean, uh, I, I just don't understand how that is persuasive at all. Yeah, and, and you know, frankly, it's a matter of incentives. I hear over and over, oh, the, the public schools are accountable uh, and the private schools are not accountable. But it's actually, it's really the reverse. The private schools uh, and charter schools, which are a form of public schools, but that are privately managed, those schools are directly accountable to the parents. And those parents, if they are not satisfied, they have the ability to leave and take their money with them. The public schools are not directly accountable to families. Uh, they're sort of like a, you know, a public monopoly, uh, especially in areas where you've got a lower income population that, that can't afford to move somewhere that has a better school system or to you know, pay private school tuition. So you essentially have a captive audience. Uh, and in those cases, those schools, uh, they are accountable to uh, elected politicians and unelected bureaucrats. Um, but that's a poor substitute for direct accountability to parents. And we're seeing that play out right now. Parents who want their schools open, well, that's why, they're, that's why most private schools are open, because the parents say, we want it, we're paying you, and then the school system, uh, you know, the private school finds a way to make that happen. These other school systems that are not directly accountable to the parents don't really have to listen to what the parents want, and they are captured, as you said, by other special interests. And, and so as we're on the cusp of uh, the annual school choice week in, in this country, where should uh, proponents of school choice and the various programs that are up and running in uh, states and localities around the nation, where should they be focusing their advocacy in, in, at this time in terms of uh, you know, getting this message that you just provided out to more and more families around the country? I mean, the, the, the key drivers are the state legislatures. Uh, so you should be taking a look. You can go to uh, edchoice.org uh, every single month. Uh, we have a uh, post that we put up uh, talking about all the different bills that are moving through state legislatures all across the country. Uh, right now, we're tracking bills uh, in more than two dozen states. Uh, and, and frankly, uh, I've been in this movement for uh, more than a decade and a half. Uh, I have never seen so many bills that have uh, a really good chance of passing. And it's not just the quantity, it's also the quality uh, state legislators are going bigger and bolder. Uh, we're seeing more education savings account programs, which unlike traditional vouchers that pay for tuition, as I mentioned earlier, the ESAs can be used for a wide variety of educational expenses, empowering families with more freedom and flexibility to customize their child's education. Uh, and they're going bigger instead of you know, these small limited programs that are you know, only for students with special needs, which is a very important population to serve. Uh, or only for lower income families or a pilot program for you know, 2,000 kids. We're seeing states that are reaching for you know, universal programs that would empower every single family to have these options. Uh, so absolutely check out the edchoice.org website. 
uh, and make sure that you, you know, call your social, call your state legislator or reach out to them via social media and let them know that you support educational choice. Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, edchoice.org, as you heard him uh, say. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This portion is sponsored by the American Federation for Children, the nation's largest school choice advocacy organization, helping every family choose the best K-12 education for their children. Find them on social media at School Choice Now. That's at School Choice Now. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show and transitioning from our conversation about a competitive model for K-12 education to a competitive model for the larger economy in the United States and the Western world. Pleased to be joined by Donald Devine, who is the Grucock Senior Scholar at the Fund for American Studies. He's also the author of the book, The Enduring Tension, Capitalism and the Moral Order, which uh, releases today. So you want to pick that up at uh, all the usual places, Amazon and the like, The Enduring Tension, Capitalism and the Moral Order. Donald Devine, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. So uh, we were talking a little bit earlier in the program about uh, President Xi's sort of by the world of Coke and a smile propaganda at Davos. And one of the things that the Chinese communists have uh, essentially figured in their approach to global domination is that domestically, you don't have to give people freedom, but you do have to give them comfort. And it seems that some uh, politicians in this country are pursuing sort of the same path as you know the 21st century model of whatever capitalism used to be as an organizing principle for an economy is not so much the ability to pursue your own economic ends as it is government that's at least quasi provide a uh, comfort that's at least quasi provided by the government. Capitalism is just a, an efficient means to do things. Capitalism has to have a moral order behind it if it's going to work well. If it has a moral order like China, it's going to act one way. If it has a moral order like traditionally the uh, United States and uh, Western civilization has, it's going to be in another way. Uh, uh, and unfortunately, uh, this country, uh, especially its elite, its leaders, are losing that moral sense uh, that made Western civilization uh, and the more that happens, the more we're going to look like China. Well, and, and to your point, I mean, that this is also a failure then arguably of conservatives and those who call themselves capitalists in that traditional notion of capitalism for not making the moral case. It's not just about, as you say, the most efficient means to distribute scarce resources, but it's also the most moral system. It's a system rooted in cooperation rather than coercion. And we... We've lost that moral case, and uh, we've uh, stopped making that moral case, and and as a result, uh, we shouldn't be surprised maybe that so many young people don't even understand what capitalism is or what socialism is and what the two different systems implicate. Yeah, that's the problem. Uh, The problem is really our higher education system, our higher education system. And I used to be a professor at the University of Maryland for many years, there were one or two conservatives uh, on the political science faculty when I was there. Today, there are none. Uh, mm-hmm. um, 
you can't truly blame the people. Uh, it's unfortunate uh, there's this philosophy of so-called progressivism, uh, uh, which uh, just thinks that you've got to tell people how to do everything. Uh, uh, there's little or no sense of freedom. They, I mean, freedom is what built Western civilization. It's built into the structure of it. Uh, and unfortunately, so many people... Uh, have lost the, the moral sense, any sense of religion or, or morality, uh, and all they can do is, is force people to, to follow what they think they have to do. Uh, and, of course, they're also relying on a, a very imperfect model, the, this model of centralized bureaucracy uh, doing everything. It just doesn't work. Uh, uh, I was a professor minding my own my uh, business in Maryland. This guy Ronald Reagan comes along and hmm. convinces me to, to help him uh, become president. He, he he made me the chief bureaucrat in the, gov- in the federal government, the head of the civil service. Uh, and actually, we got some things done over four years. But it, it's just such a cumbersome. It's really an 18th century uh, uh, solution to modern problems. It can't get anything done. It's got 50, 60 levels between the guy on the top that makes a decision, the secretary of the department, and, and where it hits the ground with real people. And there's almost no communication between the top and the bottom. Um, it's just an old system. It doesn't work. Uh, uh, and I'll tell you, in some ways, uh, the, the, the Biden administration is going to be very interesting. It's going to uh, try to do all these things with this uh, model that doesn't work, uh, uh, and it's going to fail. Uh, I think this is going to be really the decisive failure of this centralized model to, to work government. You have a president going in, he's got a, a majority in the House and a majority in the Senate, uh, the presidency, uh, they've got all they need to get it done, and it doesn't work. It, it, it just isn't going to happen. Uh, and I think that provides a, a great opportunity for people who understand how important freedom and decentralization uh, my friend Ronald Reagan used to say the secret to America's success was federalism that it decentralized uh, in government and decentralized in the private sector with uh, the capitalist market uh, uh, that's the only thing that works and the more that we tie that up uh, uh, the more do- the trouble we're in uh, and and so and so if if uh, this sclerotic centralized bureaucracy that you're talking about, which gets uh, more cumbersome with each passing administration, if there is this watershed moment where it finally collapses in on itself like a dying star in terms of legitimacy, then uh, it seems to me one of the uh, imperatives, moral imperatives as well as functional imperatives, is sort of like w- what the work the Fund for American Studies does, which is develop talented people. You, you can't tackle you know reimagining. K through 12 or, or post-secondary education altogether all at once, but you can develop talent and you can um, and provide pathways for talented people to go into and try to perhaps rediscover and uh, and reimbue uh, similarly scholastic institutions to government like so many college campuses, so many universities with uh, renewed intellectual vigor if you're if you're bringing talent to the table and it, it just seems this is going to be a painstaking process. But but it's the one that needs to be done. Yeah, well, I mean, the Fund for American Studies and many other organizations are, uh, are 
teaching people history. Uh, the, the poor students don't know anything about it. Just talking to a, a woman I've been working with for many years, and she told me that uh, she sent actually my last book uh, to a whole bunch of people. Uh, and she says, they just say, I never saw any of this before. This right. is so interesting. It's exciting. Now you have to find somebody who, who's interested and wants to learn uh, and that's one of the things the fund does. We go out and try to find those uh, people. Uh, and all we have to do is teach them this great history of the West and its philosophy and its moral structure. Uh, uh, this is new, unfortunately, to, to so many of our students. They do not get this at the university uh, uh, almost anywhere. There are some exceptions, but... Uh, uh, the great majority, they just never hear this story. Well, and this is why we need uh, scholars like you to continue producing scholarship like your book, The Enduring Tension, Capital, Capitalism and the Moral Order. He is Donald Devine. Donald Devine, thanks so much for joining us, and good luck with the book. Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate it, and enjoy the snowy weather out there. <laughs> thank you. Take care. Brought to you by the Fund for American Studies. The Fund for American Studies is an educational nonprofit that is changing the world by developing leaders for a free society, offering transformational programs that teach the principles of limited government, free market economics, and honorable leadership to students and young professionals in America and around the world. Download a free ebook to learn how you can become a champion for liberty at teachingfreedom.org. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. In his uh, piece, All Hail the Reopening, Jeffrey Tucker over at uh, the American Institute for Economic Research uh, queries uh, whether the uh, science has just lined up with the political timing brilliantly for lockdowner politicians like Newsom, Pritzker, and Cuomo, and that explains the reversal from positions past. Well, California, December 7th, the seven-day rolling average, 23,000 cases. January 24th, seven-day average, 25,000-plus cases. December, outdoor dining prohibited. January 24th, outdoor dining reopens. Huh. Also, we find that um, per Yanan Weiss, uh, California's emergency stay at home orders uh, were lifted with 50 percent less ICU beds available now than they had the day he implemented the stay at home order. And of course, that's the case in Chicago as well, where you have more cases, more hospitalizations than in most of the time over the last year where the lockdowners like Pritzker and Lightfoot were pursuing lockdown policies with great enthusiasm. Time to open. I mean, it can't be that all of these heroes in public office stopped being in the business of saving lives, can it? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jeffrey Tucker, editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research, author of... The market loves you. Why you should love it back, Jeffrey Tucker. Thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. So glad to be here. I'm happy for the for the opening. It's about time. Well, right, and 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 the reason the uh, science and data matter, since we've been beaten over the head and neck uh, uh, area about it for the last decade, is because what are the ba- what is the basis on which you're making public policy? 
that question needs to be answered by these same people that are in full reversal at present. Yeah, there's no science to this. This is a calamity from the very beginning. And you had a lot of political panic going on. Hundreds of thousands of businesses are crushed. You know, the CDC is now reporting a record number of deaths from a drug overdose. 81,000, you know, uh, there's no, we've never seen anything like this. I think there should be held pay. But anyway, whatever the case, for whatever reason, since the inauguration, uh, you're starting to see reversals uh, all over the country. But uh, what we probably won't see is a reversal of the displacement that this has precipitated, uh, people moving away from Chicago, New York, San Diego, and to places like Denver, Atlanta. Gigantic demographic uh, shifts having taken place over the last year. People started to realize probably around summer that the lockdowns were going to continue. So people began to leave. California, New York City, which is just a shell of its former self, I'm sorry to say. It's going to take years to repair all this damage. There's a housing boom in the country, but that's just because people are are moving out and buying houses. I guess what offends me most is the the pretense that you you, you see that um, this is all based on on science. Ironically, one of the few thoroughly honest statements from any elected official in the last year came from Biden the other day, where he said that the government can't do anything about the trajectory of the virus over the coming months. There's never been anything government can do about a trajectory of, of a virus. There's th- things you might be able to do individually, protect your loved ones, you know, uh, or seek out ex- exposure, which is it's a rational position for anybody in a non-vulnerable category. But there's nothing government itself can do. And I think all these lockdowns have been a complete and calamitous waste. And that will be admitted by one and all at some point, you know, not yet. But at some point, we're just going to have to admit that we really screwed up. Is Merck admitting as much? Merck uh, announcing that it is discontinuing its pursuit of a vaccine and is focusing instead on two investigational medicines that would be therapeutics for COVID-19, seeming to indicate that, you know, it's just more effective to come up with a therapeutic than it is to spend time trying to replicate what is already in the market. You'd think we would have learned that during the AIDS crisis. Therapeutics are the best way to deal with viruses. Uh, we just got to figure out how the viruses work and, and put the medical community to work with individuals and try to mitigate its severe effects as much as possible. Instead, we went full vaccine. And I, I think in the long run, what we're going to find is that therapeutics are the way to go. But I'm not a med- medical doctor. I do know that however you're going to deal with a new pathogen, it, it really does come down to the medical community and individuals. And it's not really something that politicians can, can deal with. And that's why in the course of the 20th century, we never pursued lockdowns for any previous pathogen. And some of them were uh, more dangerous than COVID on a global uh, basis. So, you know, the Asian flu of 5758 was six times as deadly as COVID-19 when she looked at the mortality figures for the globe. A really deadly pathogen. There were no closures. And that was for a reason. Public health back in those days was wise. They didn't want the public to panic. They didn't want lives being ruined. They didn't want society disrupted because a a well-functioning society is the best way you get a disease uh, under control. And people used to know that. Jeff Tucker, let's hold it there. And when we come back, I want to pick up on uh, the discussion of the lockdown impacts, including on life expectancy. More with American Institute for Economic Research's Jeffrey Tucker right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. 
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with the American Institute for Economic Research's Jeffrey Tucker about uh, the COVID lockdowns and their impacts, thus as they've been measured to this point. And I, I wanted to to focus too uh, underreported aspect of this: the revisions down in life expectancy, and uh, more so for uh, persons of color than the general population. And it's in part, yes, because of deaths of despair, but it's also in part because of the treatments that people should have been getting that they weren't getting. That's right. And, and you terrify, you, the government's terrified the population. People were even afraid to go to the hospital. And uh, that's one of the reasons for the increase of hospitalizations over the, uh, over the winter was that people could finally get access to medical care without, uh, without uh, being afraid so, I mean, there's so much history that has to be written here, and the lockdown is very harshly. And there's an item that just came out this morning. It turns out Dr. Fauci, who's you know, been the major advocate of lockdown, you know, media darling, yeah. is the highest paid employee in the entire federal government. He gets $417,600 a year right. to spend all of his time on television arguing that your business needs to be shut down and that you're... You're, 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 uh, that you should stay indoors and, well, and mask. Well, well, I mean, to be, to be fair, Jeff, he tells us what we need to do when he believes we could accept what he has to say. He parcels it out because he, he doesn't tell us the whole truth. But now here's the good news. He's unshackled to tell us just what the science says. He doesn't have to worry about the Trump administration trying to massage his views anymore. So we should be getting a better advice and counsel from Dr. Fauci going forward, don't you think? Well, he doesn't read the science. He's too busy going on television. So, you know, I, you read the science. I read the science. You know, there's papers coming out every day, uh, and he doesn't have time to read them. He doesn't. Bother. He just he just wings it. You know, he's he's a media star, and and that's about it. And people who worked with him at the White House said this about him. He was completely clueless, clueless about all the latest research. Never cared. He had his line from the very beginning, and he stuck with it. Well, and, uh, and, and, and you, you, I mean, it's, you know, it's almost like with talking about politician here because he's behaved like one, you know, that you just ignore the track record. Uh, and, the, and you go back to Tony Fauci and the pronouncements he made about AIDS initially in the 80s, uh, where he was about as wrong as a medical professional can be, a public health professional, where he believed that AIDS could be transmitted casually. And he played politics with AIDS because he didn't want to be seen as you know, uh, zeroing in on the gay community in terms of the most impacted community. Yeah, and it was, it was, he was personally responsible for the for the uh, toilet seat panic uh, all over the country. People are afraid to use the bathroom in public spaces. They're afraid they're going to get AIDS. From so, yeah, this is he's, he's been so destructive his entire career, but nothing compares to what he's done this year. And it's sickening how he's... Well, I, look, we're going to be, we're opening up now, and I'm glad to hear the good news about Chicago, by the way, uh, about time. Uh, but there's still so much work to do to try to figure out what exactly happened and why did we do this and, and, and who, who should we blame. And, and it's going to take years to sort all this. But 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 there's but there's also still a lot of uh, debates to be had and policies in the offing. I, I I know the story about the Miami Heat using coronavirus sniffing dogs to screen fans at games. And you're talking about saliva tests to return to work. You're talking about lanyards on kids uh, around kids uh, going back to school. Did the parent check you? Or did a school nurse check you? And what else will be included, perhaps, in terms of 
you know, a, a, a data card on individuals in a school or in a business setting. I mean, there's still a lot of like what is going to be the new normal post COVID uh, conversations to be had, it seems. Yeah, we've got to figure those out. Uh, the track and trace scandal, you know, that was always the answer. Uh, in the, over the last 10 months, we have to track and trace. You can't do that for a virus that's so, so widespread. And for most people, uh, entirely mild. Uh, that was that was the scam, but it's just it's become an excuse for the surveillance state. You know, at some point, uh, we this is why the work you're doing is so important. Uh, p- people need to stop being manipulated by politicians and uh, and get scientific, get calm, get rational, and then we will stop being manipulated by these uh, by these people at the top. But if, you know, I wrote a whole book called Liberty Lockdown where I try to explore this. But I think one of the things I'm starting to realize is that there really was a tremendous amount of public panic here in the spring. And the politicians used that panic to and just just practice uh, uh, invading our, our liberty and property and lives. And they, they enjoyed it. It was a, a real kick for them. And one of the reasons I think we're starting to see the opening now is that people are sick of it. They're just really set up with it, and the politicians are starting to worry. I mean, the California case is, is a good one because uh, Newsom there is facing a, a serious recall letter, right. and he's discovered that oh, maybe people need to have their rights back, you know, uh, take their own risks. So once the politicians get scared of the people, then we're going to start to see the openings really accelerate. Well. Yeah. Well, right. And and to me, the only way that you prevent this from happening again is you have to see pe- political consequences be visited upon people, maybe in some cases legal as well. But you have to have people that were proponents and and uh, implementers of these lockdown policies removed from office. Otherwise, their lesson will be, you know, you just got to sort of uh, uh, you know, feel out where the public is. You whip as much frenzy as you can. You seize on that to extend your power as much as you can. But then you have to throttle back at a certain point just to survive when, as you say, the, the natives get restless. But if there's nobody who loses their office over this, if Andrew Cuomo, St. Andrew of COVID-19, continues to get book deals, then, there, then this will happen again because there will have been no political consequences paid. And there will be a devastating impact on business investment. I mean, why would you start a restaurant? You know, why would you invest in, 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 a, in a chain restaurants at all? Why would you start a new venue for for concerts? You know, why would you go into music if you're going to get your job canceled for a full year? You know, what's going to happen to the arts? Why would you start a concert venue? Why would you donate to a to a symphony if the symphony is just going to be shut down? Like, we need ironclad promises in the future that this cannot happen ever again, and not just promises. We need some kind of mechanism to make sure that it doesn't happen. One of the things that really failed us in 2020 is the court system. You know, yeah. where, where were the courts? Where was the Constitution? Where was the Bill of Rights? Where what? were the legislatures? Where, was the, where are the legislative yeah, branches? Right. Je- These emergency edicts are just outrageous. The legislatures need to reign in the government. We need government to be locked down, not the people. Huh. There's a great statement. Jeffrey Tucker, editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research. The book, The Market Loves You, Why You Should Love It Back. Uh, Jeffrey, thanks for joining us. As always, appreciate it. My pleasure.
Welcome back to the show. And uh, just to uh, add a few more points to the discussion we were having before the break with Jeffrey Tucker from the American Institute of Economic Research. Have you seen what's happening in the Netherlands? Three days now of rioting in the streets and um, a lot of it of a violent and destructive nature. So certainly not condoning it, but it is interesting to note hundreds arrested as police confronted mobs of missile throwing youths. It's reported setting uh, vehicles ablaze in a number of towns, including Rotterdam and causing a major unrest there. Um, not uh, countenancing the lockdowns anymore. Uh, And uh, meanwhile, back in the United States, where we have this new era of competence in the administration of the war, quote unquote, against COVID-19, we have a newly minted CDC director who doesn't know how many doses of the vaccines we have. (laughs) We have uh, Joe Biden pretending he's got a didn't inherit a plan and he's got a plan that just is a restatement of the goals of the Trump administration are actually not even the goals, but what was actually occurring million vaccinations a day, right? hundred million vaccinations in the first hundred days. And Biden CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky doesn't know how many doses of the vaccines we have. Hmm. There's only two companies that are distributing, producing and distributing FDA approved vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer. You would think it would be difficult to, divide up the distribution for the various states without a hard count on the aggregate number of doses available, but okay. And um, meanwhile, as uh, the arguments persist over a politicized distribution of the vaccine, taking into account uh, values of the left, like equity versus just going with risk as the driving force and, distributing the vaccines by age. Now we have other competing interests, and I'm not just talking about Hollywood types who are trying to bribe doctors for vaccines. They learn nothing from Varsity Blues. That's one report. This is even more entertaining. Cats and dogs may need to get COVID vaccine to stop the spread of the virus, according to scientists. Oh, science! Experts from the University of East Anglia, Earlham Institute, and the University of Minnesota, writing in the journal Virulence, which is always a page-turner, said that uh, the virus in animals followed by transmission to humans poses a significant long-term risk to public health, significant long-term risk to public health. Although they also concede that um, while dogs and cats can contract the virus, there are no known cases of them carrying it on to humans in the world, but it's a significant long-term risk to public health. Hmm. And uh, by the way, the concession that, um, there are no known cases of them carrying the virus to humans was um, made by Koch van Oosterhout, who is a professor of evolutionary genetics at the University of East Anglia. And yes, I mentioned this just because I wanted to say that name. I loved him in Fletch so much. It just gets sillier and sillier. The data and the scientists, the experts and our betters. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. 
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at uh, danprofshow.com, at danprof, and at danprofshow on social media. And uh, we have spent a good deal of time talking about uh, President Xi and the Chai Coms. Uh, let us uh, now move over to talk about another one of America's enemies. That would be Vlad Putin and the Russians, particularly as uh, his profile has been re-raised in the last couple of weeks with the arrest of uh, Russian dissident Alexei Navalny. Um, Navalny, by the way, who interestingly uh, had some comments about uh, Twitter banning President Trump, uh, somebody who appreciates the importance of living in a society where people are able to speak their mind. Very interesting to, to get to his commentary on the topic. For uh, more on the state of play uh, with the Putin regime, we're pleased to be joined by Dana Lewis, award-winning international journalist, correspondent, and host of the Backstory podcast. Lewis is one of the longest-serving Western reporters to be based in Russia, 12 years, and uh, he served as the Moscow correspondent for NBC News and later the Moscow bureau chief for Fox News. Dana, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, guys. Excited to be here. Thank you. So um, what, what, what is the status of Navalny? I know uh, I, so I read that his wife had been released from custody. What, what is Navalny's status and, and, um, and how much of a threat to Putin's regime does he present? Well, I think that's changed in the last couple of days. So it's a good question. His status is essentially he was poisoned in August. He fought for his life in a hospital in Germany. He came home uh, almost two weeks ago. He was arrested at the airport. They had threatened to arrest him, so he knew what he was in for. And they were hoping, I think the Kremlin was hoping that he wouldn't come back uh, because he represents a big threat and a growing threat to the Kremlin and to President Putin. So he is in jail um, on a charge, an old fraud charge, which was a wobbly bogus charge, which he, he says was inflated against him just so that he wouldn't run in politics and he wouldn't be able to stand for president. Um, and Russia is facing parliamentary elections this September, and Navalny is organizing against Russia United Party, which is Putin's party. Um, and I think that the Kremlin made a decision to take him out. And they're either, if they couldn't kill him, they're going to put him behind bars for a very long time. He's been remanded in custody. Um, and his trial will this, this new trial will take place next month, uh, but he could be facing years in prison. Well, what, what, what's the basis for the decision that was made, do you think? Because it seems to me that Putin likes to treat a dissident like Navalny as uh, an irrelevancy. He, he doesn't even want to address his existence. But now, for whatever reason, and I'm looking for some insight from you, um, he felt compelled to have to address it straight away by taking him into custody. I think if you kind of roll back to the summer, Navalny was out organizing in Siberia and his anti-corruption party actually did quite well in some of the mayoral elections. Um, and then he was campaigning online against Putin and exposing a lot of corruption in the Kremlin. I mean, you know, t taking people that Putin's inner circle and hanging them out by name. Um, and then now he's come out with this incredible video, which is almost two hours long about Putin's palace. And he prepared that video before he went to jail, before he came back to Germany. Um, and I mean, it's very bold and very courageous. And it calls Putin out in terms of his wallets. He, they name names. They put pictures up of people. They have the structures of offshore companies. And this incredible palace that was built near the Black Sea that's almost, a, you know, more than a billion dollars. 
And that speaks to Putin for 20 years putting money in his pocket. And, there were, um, and it's, it's and, very and, hard for the Kremlin to say it's not true. Well, and, and there were protests uh, over the weekend, too, significant enough to generate news coverage. And so that's something that can't just be brushed aside either, it would seem. That's key, right? Because up until now, it's just chit-chat on the Internet. I mean, even though that video had 60 million views. But Navalny's call to the street uh, when he was in his first court appearance, uh, you know, okay, we thought maybe they'd get a few thousand out in Moscow. You're talking more than 100 cities across Russia in 11 time zones, thousands of people brawling with police. The Kremlin is absolutely rattled by it, right? Because how do you stop it? And now they've called for more demonstrations next weekend. And normally how you stop it uh, from the perspective of an autocrat like Putin is just to suppress it. You stop it with force. And I, and, and we've seen this play out in Hong Kong, too, with the Chinese communists and against the democracy protesters there. How, how do you see this playing out? Is this something that is uh, uh, at a point now where those protests will be sustained and they will force Putin's hand? I think it's the beginning of something. I, I don't think it's the explosion. I don't want to overstate the relevance of it, but uh, the, the significance of it. But it is significant because it's, a, it's the beginning of a burn now in Russia where people are not scared to go to the street. Um, and what will Putin do? What, they shouldn't have arrested Navalny. Let him come back. No, a lot of people don't even know who he is in Russia. Mm. Now they do. Mm-hmm. And the views on the Internet and social media are huge, right? So now they're making him into a kind of Mandela character in russia a cause celeb for everything that's bothering russians and that's the pandemic the referendum that was held this summer where putin extends his term until 2036 potentially bad economics frustration it's a lot of it you know navalny is going to become a lightning rod for all of that and i think that putin has put himself in a box to answer your question because he doesn't know what to do now if 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 he gets soft that doesn't play well in russia and they promised to arrest Navalny, so now they've done it. And they're saying they're going to put lock him up for a long time. These protests won't go away. And is it your assessment that Navalny is sort of the real deal when it comes to somebody who believes in in something approximating a free society? Real deal. Um, campaigning against corruption, exposing the charade of democracy in Russia, calling all of Putin's inner circle out. These are guys in, you know, XKGB, now FSB, um, naming names, showing bank accounts. Um, I mean, he's, he's very sober and he's very methodical um, and he is courageous and relentless and he is a major problem for Putin. And with respect to uh, uh, America, what should, uh, what would you suggest or, or, or that, I mean, it's maybe beyond your ken, but, you know, what should what, what would people in, in Russia who want to see Putin depose, what would they like to see America do? Just amplify Navalny's name so that everybody around the world knows who it is and put more pressure on Putin or or what could be done? You know, Bill Browder, who's uh, was pushed out of Russia and he was a big financier there and he's in the UK. And he's, he sponsors the Magnitsky sanctions because his lawyer was jailed and died in prison, same prison where Navalny is now says you got to do sanctions. So the EU is considering them. But, you know, getting 27 nations to really agree on it is, is hard going. Um, and some of them take money from Russia. Some of them have gas and oil deals. Sure. But, yeah, the U.S. and I think the Biden administration knows how. Look, Joe Biden knows Putin. He's met with him. 
and he's very well educated on Russia. And I think they'll keep the pressure on. Um, but, you know, here's the other side of the coin. If there is actually a real grassroots movement inside Russia demanding democracy, demanding a change, do you want to push too hard from the outside? Let it happen on its own. That's what's happening in Belarus next door. So, yeah, you have to call Putin out, maybe apply some economic pressure, but at the same time, don't make it look like the Kremlin wants it to play. And that's that it's outside influence. Right. It's Americans, you know, stirring the pot in Russia. If, if this is a real grassroots political movement, support them, but don't be seen to be driving it. He is Dana Lewis, award-winning international journalist, correspondent and, ho- and correspondent and host of the Backstory podcast. And uh, you don't want to check out that podcast to uh, stay abreast of what's happening on the ground in Russia, as he was describing. Dana Lewis, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. 2021 is already off to a disturbing start for conservatives. We've seen Twitter unilaterally shut down President Trump's account. The conservative platform Parler was booted off the App Store by Apple. And big tech is muzzling free speech at a speed that nobody could have predicted. Nobody except biologist and evolutionary theorist Brett Weinstein, who appeared in the film No Safe Spaces to issue this warning about political correctness running amok. If this is allowed to continue, it is going to work its way into the entire apparatus of government, journalism, maybe most seriously into the tech sector, which has become the governance apparatus for the new public square. YouTube and Google, Facebook and Twitter dictate whose voices can be heard. And if those entities start trying to engineer the conversation to adhere to the rules laid out with these phony Trojan horse terms, disaster will be the result. You need to see the full movie No Safe Spaces today for a preview of the politically correct dangers facing America. Just go to SalemNow.com and download your copy of No Safe Spaces or order the DVD. It's fast, easy to do, and you and your family need to see this important film now before any more of our freedoms are muzzled. Again, go to SalemNow.com and get your copy of No Safe Spaces. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Perfect segue talking about Russia. Now we talk about American culture as it as it uh, pertains to uh, the purge that's going on against dissent by those on the left. A good piece at uh, Tablet Magazine making its way around by Armin Rosen. Journalists mobilize against free speech. And he referenced something you heard on this show back last month when Steve Call, who is uh, the dean of uh, Columbia's journalism school, said those of us in journalism have come to terms with the fact that free speech, a principle we hold sacred, is being weaponized against the principles of journalism, essentially suggesting that uh, it's time to re-examine our love affair with uh, that First Amendment freedom. It needs to be modified, as was the clear implication of what Steve Call had to say on MSNBC. And so it's happening. Absolutely it is. You don't hold it very sacred now, do you, Steve, at all? Josh Howley writing in the New York Post. By the way, this is just getting started. 1-6, what happened at the Capitol on January 6th, has been the animating event 
to give license to the naked, aggressive pursuit of dissent. And again, to borrow from my favorite opinion from one of my favorite Supreme Court justices, Robert Jackson in West Virginia v. Barnett, the pursuit of the compulsory unification of opinion, which achieves only the unanimity of the graveyard. Josh Howley, have you checked your social credit score lately? You might want to. Mine seems to have taken a nosedive this month. You might want to see how yours is doing. The latest form of cancel culture in this country is corporate monopolies and the left team up to shut down speech they don't like and force their political agenda on America. You know, the social credit score is our latest corporate import from communist China is what Howley suggests. And, um, of course, he is facing calls for uh, ouster, well, calls for his resignation, calls for expulsion if he doesn't resign from the Senate because he dared do something that he is uh, legally provided, that he is legally within his bounds to do, which is to object Mm -hmm. to the electoral certification on that day. Goya Foods, Robert Unanaway, the CEO of Goya Foods, who was excoriated by the left for saying positive things about Trump and comparing his own family's entrepreneurial story to Trump's entrepreneurial success. Well, he has been uh, muzzled by Goya's corporate board. The vote of a majority of Goya's nine-member board means Unanawe must now abstain, uh, excuse me, must now obtain board permission, so abstain from making any more media appearances without board permission. Bob doesn't speak for Goya Foods when he speaks on TV, so one board member and uh, third-generation owner Andy Unanawe told the Post uh, leading up to the vote. Nothing like your family turned it against you. The family has diverse views on politics, but politics is not part of our business. Our political point of view, uh, our political point of views are irrelevant. Well, clearly not. Otherwise, the board wouldn't have taken the action to shut Bob up, wouldn't it? Would it have and, and done, the, done so, Andy? Right. And, well, by the way, uh, just another example, uh, Mike Lindell, our friend, uh, my pillow, Mike, banned on Twitter now as of this, as, I think late last night or maybe early this morning uh, for tweets about uh, the 2020 election. You know, the topic that shall not be spoken unless you bend the knee and say the election was not stolen dutifully. Well, what's the response going to be? Here's a response I, I really like. This comes to us from. Ace of Spades. People are always asking me what uh, what do I read, uh, you know, in terms of daily basis, blogs and various outlets. Uh, Ace of Spades is one of them. Throw that on the list. This is a good one from uh, a gentleman named Buck Throckmorton. That's a name. What if deplorable start deplatforming leftists from receiving skilled trade services? Uh, are we to a point now, perhaps, where it's time for the deplorables to fight back? And um, give the left, give corporate America and the elites who represent a small fraction of the population. Oh, by the way. Uh, and uh, frankly, even less concentration of wealth than the more numerous and in the aggregate more wealthy middle income American families. Fact. The deplorables have the numbers and they have more than that, as Buck Throckmorton love saying that name, reminds us in his piece, maybe this is the only way to educate the ignorant, sentimental barbarians as to the implications of their purge is to visit their approach unto them. You know, all legal and nice like here. Leftists despise working class deplorable, seek to punish them for all their disapproved habits. You know, God, guns, motorized vehicles, voting MAGA. 
Well, the tradesmen I know are swamped with business right now, so it might be a good time for them to establish their own terms of service, enabling them to deny services to advocates of cancel culture. Oh, you have a leak? Oh, who'd you vote for? Yeah, I, I, I uh, got a call that you're having a problem with your furnace. I, I pulled up uh, to your home. I see you got a hate has no home sign in the yard. Hmm, that doesn't make me comfortable. That's violence. That's hate-filled speech. Sorry, I can't serve you. As the author offers another comparison, low on gas in the middle of the desert. In the middle of the desert, that's a shame. But last chance gas can't put fuel in your car if it's going to be spreading the message of hate encompassed by your coexist sticker. On what I'm sure is your Subaru Outback, uh, he uh, asks, "Can such service be denied?" Well, the left is doing it. My county is relaying updates about COVID vaccines via Facebook. My town posts winter road updates on Facebook. I can't express my political views on Facebook, or else Mark Zuckerberg might deny me access to life or death info regarding roads and vaccines. As the defenders of monster tech like to remind us, if I don't want Facebook banishing me for having the wrong opinion, I just go start my own social media company. Well, then it's not too much for the left to go start their own skilled trade services, is it? As uh, Mike Lindell, going back to him, his my pillows are pulled from Bed Bath & Beyond and the other stores that used to feature them because they disagree with Mike Lindell's political views. And then use the cover. Oh, they're not all of a sudden they're not selling as the cover story. Right. Please. Broken down uh, furnace during a deep freeze. Too bad you advocated for a fracking ban on Facebook. That's a violation of Smith HVAC's terms of service. Looks like you'll need to find yourself an HVAC company that can fix you up with 100 percent renewable energy if you want the heat back on. Now, it won't be everybody. I mean, the pipe fitters uh, endorsed Joe Biden, who then turned around, of course, and killed the Keystone XL pipeline, 11,000 jobs. Won't be for everybody. But what about that? What about sending the message? What about beta testing and specific zip codes to send the message? Oh, um, you want this to be the culture? Well, how do you like it when you can't get all of the guys and the services you rely on from said guys for the conveniences and the easy functioning of your life? What about uh, over-the-road truckers? And by the way, I... Corollary to this would, of course, be, you know, conservative or freedom loving businesses uh, not doing business with the Jacobin leftist corporate types and focusing on doing business only with those who share their values. Is that how you want to do it? You want to have people uh, do business, both uh, business to business as well as business to consumer based on political views? Well, that can go in two directions, can it? That could boomerang on the left. And I think uh, just even raising this as a prospect to remind people just how interconnected we are and perhaps just how easy their life is thanks to all of these services at their fingertips that could get a lot more complicated if that's the litmus test you want to apply in your everyday life. I think it's useful certainly as a conversation piece and perhaps as, uh, as I said, as a bit of a taste of their own medicine to really drive the point home. This is Dan Proft. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and uh, previous segment, a perfect segue to this one, talking about uh, the purge and, frankly, the boomerang on the purge, as we were discussing before the break. 
now we turn our attention to the 1776 Commission. This the uh, brainchild of the Trump administration, bringing together scholars uh, to uh, offer an assessment of American history and uh, some of the challenges going forward as uh, we have this effort underway by the 1619 Project and other elements of uh, the Jacobin left to uh, eliminate American history, to start it over and or at minimum recast it and to start a new history as of whatever date certain they set. Uh, good uh, write-ups from some of the participants in, uh, on that commission, including Carol Swain, friend of the show, formerly of Vanderbilt University, our friend VDH, Victor Davis Hanson as well. Uh, and, of course, uh, this report was uh, immediately removed from the White House website and expunged from public discourse as much as possible by the Biden administration, lest anyone have any notions of considering American history warts and all. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Matthew Spaulding, who served as the executive director of the 1776 Commission. He is uh, otherwise the vice president for Hillsdale College's uh, Washington, D.C. operations and dean of the Van Andel Graduate School of Government. Matthew Spaulding, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's good to be with you. How are you? Good. Uh, So um, the uh, walk through American history that you and uh, some of those mentioned, as well as many others did, the uh, the approach that you all took towards constructing this report for public consideration. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, I, I think I was probably um, uh, both a mix of shock that any any president would abolish a commission, uh, meaning to mark 1776, looking forward to the 250th anniversary of the Declaration, which is what the commission was about. Uh, I was shocked that it was uh, abolished on the first day. Um, I suppose to some extent that was, it's also a kind of a, a, a certain honorific that we struck a nerve and we can talk about that as well. But, uh, I think the, 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 the shock comes from the, uh, the fact that, uh, there really is nothing in the report that is, um, either not in, in, in mainstream scholarship, but that's been talked about for some time. Indeed, the most important claims, the report that 1776 is the, is the historical source of uh, our our defining purpose as a nation, and that we should look back to the Constitution, the Declaration. I mean, this is not a, a, a new kind of radical claim here. This is the that was the claim of Martin Luther King. Uh, that was the claim of Lincoln. Uh, the claim of the founders themselves that something different had happened in 1776, uh, the start of this new nation, and uh, then the creation of the Constitution. So. The the uh, the uh, the the guidance, if you will, for the for the commission was to advise the president about uh, what are the core principles of uh, emanating from 1776 and how they played out in our history. Uh, so it's not a walk through all of history. It's not meant to be comprehensive. It doesn't propose a curriculum in, a, in any formal sense because the federal government can't do that. Uh, but what it does do is it spends a lot of time explaining the principles of the Declaration, the argument of the Declaration from the founders' perspective and, and looking at it through the eyes of Lincoln. Uh, and then it talks about some of the core challenges to those principles. Uh, those, those, those challenges have, have had uh, a, a, a wide 
practical differences between, say, something like slavery, which is very barbaric and inhumane, uh, and uh, communism and fascism, uh, which were, in their own way, violent and, and uh, dehumanizing, uh, to progressivism, which um, is, is, is less um, barbaric and violent, but is just as much of an intellectual challenge to those principles as anything else. Uh, and it also talks about the challenge uh, coming from someone like John C. Calhoun, who denied the Declaration of Independence in favor of group rights. And we see that, to some extent, coming up again today in the form of what is popularly called identity politics, looking at people according to their race or ethnicity as opposed to their equal humanity. I, let's, so that's let, yeah. That, that's the broad perspective of what all we cover in the report. Yeah, and and um, when we come back, I want to pick up on that where the objections came to the extent that they were made specific. Um, probably the uh, John C. Calhoun comparison to uh, the identitarians of today rub people the, the wrong way. But we'll uh, pick it up there with Matthew Spalding, the executive director of the 1776 Commission. More right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Matthew Spaulding, Executive Director of the 1776 Commission. Uh, it was cobbled together during the Trump administration and then quickly discarded in the Biden administration. Uh, Matthew Spalding is otherwise the vice president for Hillsdale College's D.C. operations, dean of the Van Andel Graduate School of Government. And, uh, Matthew, we left uh, before the break talking about uh, John C. Calhoun, the secessionist movement, rejected the Constitution and uh, believed in group rights over individual rights, uh, individual as a unit of analysis. And that uh, harkens forward to today. But I suppose the combination of... um, Considering 1776, the nation's founding, where the left sees it as 1619 today, I suppose, as well as uh, a secessionist like Calhoun being compared to the leftist identitarians of today, rubbed the Biden administration the wrong way. No, I, I think that was the nerve we struck. But the argument, I think, is the correct argument, which is why we made that. We didn't do it for political purposes at all. Mm-hmm. We uh, fully intended to advise it was done under one president, and we fully intended it to be advice for the next president as well. I think what it was was this became untenable for them because they want to make arguments about equity. But the problem is, and, and I think that we would like to encourage the American people to think this through, what is the source of our rights? And the argument of the founding was that it was grounded in the laws of nature and nature's God and the fact that all men are created equal. Martin Luther King made this argument very clearly that all people, all men, Men and women, uh, black and white, all have the same rights. We can't pick and choose, and some don't have more rights than others. He actually opposed the idea of what he called a racialization of rights. The Declaration is a promissory note. And and, and, and by the way, and, and from the reading, um, I know this to be true, you, you mentioned Frederick Douglass, a freed slave, American abolitionist. He argued the same thing King did 100 years earlier. Absolutely. 
Uh, and then I think this is consistent with the tradition, if you will. The outlier to that tradition, the first person who most famously attacked that approach was John C. Calhoun, who argued that the declaration was a self-evident lie and an error. It's not true that all men are created equal. He said that some are different, groups are different, uh, and they're different based on their race. And he used that argument, of course, to enslave black people and rule them on behalf of a justification for the Southern Confederacy. Well, when you attack the principles of the Declaration and the idea that we are all equal by nature as individuals, where, where do you go for your source of rights? Well, Calhoun laid out an argument for group rights, and the report pointed out, noting that there's a huge difference between the barbarity of slavery and what's going on today, that at least intellectually, it's a similar argument, which is a rejection of individual rights grounded in nature that all of us possess in favor of groups and, and group identity. And right now it's based on this ethnicity or that ethnicity, but it's, it's very arbitrary in the end and not very stable. Um, so we point that out to the American people and encourage them to think about that as we as we go forward, we think it's a much more unifying and much more intellectually grounded and historically accurate to say that we should base our rights claims, as did Martin Luther King and Frederick Douglass and Lincoln and the founders, on human equality, that we all have these rights equally and no group has any more rights than another group. That historically has gotten us into problems, shall we say, and we thought that that would be good to avoid. Well, if uh, in modern politics, one wants to move in that direction, uh, equity, as we now say, or identity politics, then of course you're going to object to that, not want to engage in that debate, which I think is just what's happened. Just to be clear, too, there was no glossing over the ugliness of American history, slavery, the uh, allowance for only free men to vote. I mean, these these uh, failures to abide the founding principles were were delineated. Oh, absolutely. And I think that uh, in, the, in the general position we talk about teaching American history is to teach it, I think as you said earlier, warts and all, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But you teach the, uh, what mature history do, does is it teaches you all the bad aspects of history, but also an honest history would also teach that, that what America is really about, in a, in a very beautiful way, is a people and, and great leaders uh, leading those people trying to live up to our principles. And so, Good history teaches the, 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 the flaws and the imperfections of history, but in doing so, you also point towards uh, the, the good and, and noble aspects of American history. And in, that really is the, the American story, is looking at those principles, not this kind of deep, dark past that we wish to erase and get rid of. Thinking about what happened with the commission and just what's happening in American culture generally, including uh, in education from K pre-K through post-secondary, so including college campuses. Now, Hillsdale College, sort of uh, where you're at, sort of uh, stands apart as a, a beacon of America's founding values. But I wonder um, how you all are viewing the threats to Western civilization, the threats to uh, peaceful pluralism, the threats to uh, teaching a fact-based understanding of American history, uh, how, how pronounced are they today as compared to even just a few years ago? Well, I, I think you're right in saying that, that there's been some shifts uh, of late. I mean, as I, you know, these are things that many of us, including myself, have written about for all of our adult careers. Mm -hmm. And they've only become, quote unquote, controversial uh, in the last uh, number of years, which I find just amazing. That's, that's kind of the source of my shock. Um, but I, I think the real question here is um, – what, what do the American people think of this question? I mean, it's, it, I think it's clear that the, the elite 
the elites in America and the media and the academy um, clearly have have kind of a, a, a jaundiced view, if you will, uh, of what they want to teach. But it's it's not clear to me. Indeed, the fact that we are such a divided nation suggests that a lot of people don't agree with that. Uh, they still think this is a country worth preserving, worth perpetuating, uh, that has done great things, that has a flawed past and is imperfect. Absolutely. Uh, and one of the most uh, uh, one of the, the the central flaws, the the, the the at its very center, is this question of slavery, which we must confront. Uh, but having said that, I, I don't think the American people are in a position which some of our uh, elite academics think that that America is this evil nation that ought to be. Uh, we, we also kind of, we should erase and start over again. I, I, that's not where the American people are, and, and nor should they be. And we wanted to remind them, both from a historical point of view and, and the point of view of understanding their principles, that they don't need to be there. There's something here worth defending. There's something here worth coming to understand, despite those flaws, that we should turn to, and actually that America's always turned to in its great periods of reform, but also in the midst of its, its greatest crisis. The, the source of unity really is to go back to our first principles. And that's what we would like to encourage people to do. He is Matthew Spaulding, executive director of the 1776 Commission and uh, also the vice president for Hillsdale College's D.C. operations, dean of the Van Andel Graduate School of Government. Matthew Spaulding, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Great being with you. Take care. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And to close out the show, uh, of course, the uh, recriminations and postmortems about uh, the Green Bay-Tampa Bay game uh, continue. Sports Talk Radio, not uh, our bag here, but we pick up on it, sports and politics segment and so forth. Well, the Pat McAfee show, Pat McAfee used to be a kicker for the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, remember last week we played a clip of Aaron Rodgers' appearance on Pat McAfee's show. Nice moment for Rodgers. And not such a nice moment for the Packers was this past Sunday, particularly at the end of the half when it was a 14-10 game. And the last play of the half, somehow Scotty Miller, receiver for Tampa Bay, gets behind the Green Bay defensive back and scores a gimme touchdown. Well, Chris Carter was on Pat McAfee's show to talk about that play and how Green Bay's secondary could let Scotty Miller get behind them on the last play of the half for a 40-yard bomb and a cheap touchdown. And, and by the way, this doesn't even get into the issue of LaFleur taking the ball out of Aaron Rodgers' hands uh, on fourth and goal uh, with uh, under five minutes to go. Nothing to do with that. has to do with Chris Carter, a standout wide receiver. Ohio State, Minnesota Vikings, you remember him. He's been an analyst on these shows for a long time. Chris Carter went on Pat McAfee's show and said, there's a reason that Scotty Miller was able to get behind the Green Bay secondary. You know what that reason is? His race. People have a lot of stereotypes. My man, Scotty Miller, white guy. He's white. Very. I'm black. I'm going to say this. The defensive back of Tampa Bay underestimated that white kid if that had been Antonio Brown, he would have been backed off of. Never disrespect the talent level of anyone in the National Football League. The only way they can hurt you is if he gets behind you. And he he underestimated the wheels on my man. Hey. And I saw you tweet. Hey. 
when he got that stick in, in, the, in the relay, Grayson, he hawked that dude down. You happened to be a brother. All three brothers. You can say it, man. Scoot, scoot. He disrespected the, 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 the Caucasian, hey, man. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there was a movie made about these stereotypes with Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson, Chris Carter. I mean, it's just sort of silly. Scotty Miller, by the way, uh, suburban Chicago native that Illinois passed on. He went to Bowling Green. He, he runs a 4-3-40. He's fast, it turns out. And something else that Chris Carter would, I think, concede, I don't know why he didn't get this pushback from these other professional football players he was talking about. Why do I know it? They, they certainly do. Is there scouting that's done uh, by uh, the defensive coaching staff where they say, you know, hey, Scotty Miller's a burner, 4-3-40, just remember that. You remember who the deep threats are and who the possession receivers are. Really, the defensive backs don't know this. They had no idea Scotty Miller was that fast. Or they discounted what they knew to be true because he's white. I mean, a, a team that used to feature Jordy Nelson as a deep threat, Green Bay, that is. It's, it's just, does it just get exhausting having to force feed everything through race and other, you know, identity measures just to have something to say? Chris Carter's better than that. Really silly. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please stay informed so you can. Be rational, live courageously, and we can be free in this nation. And uh, please join us again tomorrow for another edition of the Dan Prof Show. This is the Dan Prof Show.